Hello, welcome. It's 11 o'clock, so um, if you're ready, we'll get started. Uh, welcome to 11th Hour. My name's Anna Bruno. I'm sorry I couldn't be here with you yesterday if any, were you, any of you were here in the audience. Um, just a couple reminders, please, if you have them, silence or turn off your cell phones. Um, and we're pretty much ready to get started if you guys can come in and take a seat. In workshop, everyone at the table can usually tell when a writer is focused on getting across an idea rather, inhabiting, rather than inhabiting the lives of his or her characters. These stories usually fall short, not because they aren't interesting, but because they're not in point of view. Today, Paula Morris will discuss why and how we should set aside ideas in favor of what really sparks great fiction. Paula is an award-winning novelist, short story writer, and essayist from New Zealand. She holds degrees from universities in New Zealand, the UK, and the US, including a DPhil from the University of York and an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. For 10 years, Paula worked in London and New York, first as a publicist and marketing executive in the record business, and later as a branding consultant and advertising copywriter. Since 2003, she's taught creative writing at universities, including Tulane and the University of Sheffield in England. She now teaches creative writing at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and is the founder of the Academy of New Zealand Literature. Paula's short stories are widely published in journals, magazines, and anthologies, and a number have been adapted for radio in both New Zealand and the US. She has been awarded numerous fellowships, international residencies, and awards for her writing. Please join me in welcoming Paula Morris. just doing the transfer. Can you all hear me? Good. I should say that I have a, a very bad, uh, very bad allergies this week. So I'm, my head is like a big cloud of chalk. So please excuse me. I also have to put my glasses on, which I resent, but I have to do it. Otherwise, I really can't read to you. So good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Anna, for your introduction. I was asking Anna if she knew where I lived, because my first badge this weekend said I lived in Sheffield in England. Then my badge this week says I live in New Orleans. So the University of Iowa is unsure. They're certainly unsure when it comes to where to send my money anyway. <laughs> this isn't your fault, Amy. I know it's not your fault. Or is it? <laughs> so I'm a writer. I'm from New Zealand. As Anna said, I, I was born and brought up in New Zealand. And I lived about 30 years overseas. And I just moved home about a year and a half ago, actually. Um, some of you may have heard my talk two years ago that I gave here on the imperial world of international book prizes, but what I have to say today is a lot smaller in scale, and it's more focused on writing manuscripts rather than the glory or the absence of glory that follows publication. As Anna said, I write novels, I write short stories, also essays. My most recent book is an essay book called On Coming Home. I'm working on a novel right now called Yellow Palace, um, and I plan to finish it by this fall. And as you all know, when you say you're going to finish something, it means you really are going to finish it. People say, when will your book be ready? I'm like, September, October. Yeah, that's right. Um, I have an essay to finish by the end of this month, and I thought you might be entertained by the first line of it, which is all I have so far. Um, what? <laughs> Don't freak me out. Uh, it's about my mother, I suppose. So the first line is, in June, I went back to Denmark to see a witch burning. I thought that was a, 
which burning is a good start to a, an essay about your mother. <laughs> Just imagine what my mother would say. Um, I've also got a short story to write for a September deadline, another essay to do, whatever. Much of my life is about writing to deadlines, and I'm always amazed when I make them. I'm amazed I got my packet material in on time for this festival. I'm amazed I actually turn up to class on time, though I am usually the last to arrive. Now, I am a fiction writer mainly, and when I am not gallivanting around the world or lying down, which is my chief hobby, I teach creative writing at a university. So I've done this in various places in various countries, mainly the US and the UK, though I've also taught at universities in Europe and in China as well, uh, and also in New Zealand. Now, the university context means that creative writing is often part of an academic department, which may or may not be hostile to it. I mean, that's not the case here at Iowa, right? The workshops split off from the English department. But in most places, that's not the case. Um, and in many instances, your colleagues tend to see creative writing as a soft subject or some kind of therapy class. No one here thinks that, do they? Hope not. So currently, I'm part of an English department, which means my colleagues are critics and theorists. And although I do have a doctorate in literature, I approach the subject of creative writing not from the point of view of criticism or theory, but as an art form not an academic discipline. So what I really teach is what I'm teaching this week here at the festival, art and craft. So last year I returned to Auckland, as I said, my hometown, to teach at the university there where I was an undergraduate. Very strange, I seem to have got older and everybody else is young. Um, and at a dinner I had with some colleagues, one of them had a son who's currently a student at the university. And he said he was thinking of taking uh, my undergraduate class in creative writing. It's, in fact, I'm writing short fiction. Because, he said, he had a few ideas for stories. Now, I would quite like to take a painting class, but not because I have a few ideas for paintings. I'd like to learn how to paint, different ways of painting, the process, the techniques, the possibilities, the handling of materials. I have no end product already in mind and no fixed starting point either. Yet with writing, many people, and not just students, seem to think that the idea is the thing rather than the writing itself. We're seeing the strange consequences of this belief at the moment with the attempts by various very high-profile publishing houses to reinvent the works of Shakespeare and Jane Austen by commissioning updated versions. Are you familiar with these things that are going on right now? So in 2013, HarperCollins realised that Jane Austen's been dead for almost 200 years and that there are only so many movie and television adaptations that can be made at any given time. Uh, so they launched the Austin Project. Project, you say here? Project, okay. I've forgotten how to speak. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, commissioning contemporary updates. Just horrible, the sound of it. Contemporary updates of Jane Austen's six novels. So to date, in the hands of Joanna Trollope, Curtis Sittenfeld, Alexander McCall-Smith, and Val McDermott, we've got Austin Light, and often very frothy. Eleanor Dashwood now works for an architect in Exeter, which is a small city in southern England. The Bennett sisters are stuck in Cincinnati. Emma Woodhouse studies decorative arts at university. Catherine Morland is a homeschool teen obsessed with vampire novels. 
Shakespeare has been dead for twice as long as Jane Austen, so the Hogarth Shakespeare Initiative is even more ambitious, turning eight of his plays over to what they call today's best novelists for some topical retelling. And all the best novelists, by the way, are British or American. Um, I don't know how that happens. Apart from the Norwegian thriller writer Joe Nesbo, who's allowed to get his hands bloody with the Scottish play. Now, this series was launched because Shakespeare's death plus 400 years equals marketing opportunity, and it declares its novels remain true to the spirit of the plays. They'll borrow their stories from the bar just as Shakespeare borrowed his own stories. So Shylock is my name is Howard Jacobson's take on The Merchant of Venice. Jeanette Winterson has written The Gap of Time based on The Winter's Tale, and the latest in the series is Vinegar Girl by Anne Tyler, which is a remake of Taming of the Shrew. Have any of you read any of them? I've read all three. Deeply problematic. Um, <laughs> now, the press material for the Hogarth Shakespeare series talks of, quote, introducing his plays to a new generation of fans. But how? Because that suggests the story and its ideas is the thing rather than the play itself, rather than the writing. Because Shakespeare is Shakespeare because of the writing. And Jane Austen is Jane Austen because of the writing. Drives me crazy. There's actually really a slight digression I added in this morning, just so I had, while I had a public audience to rant in front of, I thought I would slip that one in. And speaking as a former marketing person, I mean, this is really an example of the idea comes from the sales and marketing people. It doesn't really come from the artist. And that's when the problems arise. Now, in the first class of every new course I teach, every new creative writing class at university, I ask students what they think is required to be a good fiction writer. Not a published writer or a commercially successful writer necessarily, but a good writer. Often they suggest discipline, imagination, skill or technique, facility with language, creativity. They rarely suggest talent. Um, perhaps because talent is out of fashion now, along with spelling <laughs> and VCRs and paying for music. Or perhaps people think that everyone is talented at everything now, as shows like This Country's Got Talent, a test. Right? We all have them. They're hideous. They're everywhere. Every country's got talent. Have, do you ever watch those shows? There's sometimes less talent than you would imagine. Now, every single time I ask my students this question, someone calls out ideas. And I write it down, and then I usually cross it out, because I don't really believe in ideas, not in the context of creative writing. I believe in daydreaming and obsessing and mulling over. I believe in things swirling around in our heads like socks in a tumble dryer, you know, rolling around until one plasters itself against the window. I believe in what my teacher here at the University of Iowa, the late Frank Conroy, called meditating on the text. And we didn't really understand it at the time. We laughed about it. But it's how he described working out how and what to revise in a given piece of work after you've had a workshop. He said, go away and meditate upon the text, which is not quite thinking, is it? And it's not simply taking on board all the different criticism you've got, but kind of getting into the zone with your work and letting the answers arise. And I do believe in zoning out and wondering. I believe in pilfering and eavesdropping, drifting and spying. I believe in experience and invention and the grab bag and the lucky dip 
and working out the puzzle and deciphering the code in harnessing all that self-loathing and fear of failure that many of us have, yes? All that ego and the doubt and the energy and using it to get yourself to sit down and write something. But I don't really believe in ideas or inspiration or even really thinking. Inspiration, as I'm sure you know, is one of the great myths of the writing life, isn't it? If you wait to be inspired, you won't achieve much. I'm usually just inspired to lie down. I'm inspired to do that a lot, but very little else. Because you will be too busy. You will be too distracted. You will be too tired. You will be too stressed out. You will tell yourself, if only I had the time and money and a room of my own, ideally a garret in Paris, yes, and complete quiet, and a really good laptop, or maybe a keyboard for the iPad, and a really supportive chair, and a good view, or perhaps no view at all, because that will be distracting, and a giant notice board to pin things on, maybe a huge no-strings grant from a benevolent agency or patron, and no family members, <laughs> or employers or employees wanting things, or asking things, or needing to be driven somewhere. Or texting, as one of my students told me this weekend, texting to ask what's for dinner um, from another room in the house. And nothing... <laughs> she actually replies to these as well. I would reply saying, who is this? <laughs> nothing to worry about or regret or dread or make me unhappy in life. Then I would be inspired. And then I would write a really great something or other. And this, of course, as you know, is nonsense because, firstly, the things that you fear and remember and rehash, not to mention your own terrible family, because everyone's family is terrible in its own special way, these are the things you need as a writer. You need passions and obsessions, dreams and nightmares. You need fear. You need shadows across your subconscious, hints and fragments of stories stewing below the surface because these are the matter of fiction, of art, not ideas. Ideas, I believe, can be the enemy of the creative writer. Ideas are the things I know some people within academia, particularly English departments, use as starting points for creative work. You know, they offer creative assignments in their courses as a ways to investigate or demonstrate issues of theory or criticism. So they might get a student to write a pastiche of someone's style, or they ask them to explore the, the work and ideas of a narrative theorist by writing a story that demonstrates his or her key points. Now, this may be a useful approach for theorists and critics when they are trying to lure students into their otherwise dry classes. But it's not ideal for artists or for the creation of art. In fact, it's one of the main issues I face with students of all ages in all contexts who get stuck writing stories. They run out of steam after a few pages or a few chapters or maybe 50 pages, maybe quite a way in, because their starting point was an idea, and that's the one thing they don't really need. Now, some of you may be familiar with the writer Robert Olin Butler, yep. uh, the author of The Story Collection, A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain, which won the Pulitzer, and also of a writing manifesto called From Where You Dream. Some of you have read that? The beginning of it is particularly very interesting. I think he's kind of crazy. And Anna, this is why I was unsure that you should record my talk today, because I tend to say things off the cuff that should not be broadcast. Um, 
Now, Butler is an Iowa grad. He teaches at Florida State University. Uh, very interesting ideas about writing. And he is no fan of ideas. And he exhorts his writing students to stop thinking. He says, please get out of the habit of saying that you've got an idea for a short story. Art does not come from ideas. Art does not come from the mind. Art comes from the place where you dream. Art comes from your unconscious. It comes from the white hot center of you. Now visual artists, he argues, can do a lot of conceptualizing and still end up creating terrific works of art. They are able to do so because once they get out there in front of their canvases or their blocks of granite, in front of their materials, they have to leave those ideas behind. The medium itself won't let them think. Now literature, reliant on language, doesn't force you to leave your ideas behind. But, he says, if you will a story into being, by God it's going to show. Now the biographer Benjamin Moser, writing in the New York Times last year, um, he, was, he was part of a conversation about this thing, the novel of ideas. And he agrees that a novel with ideas, with ideas, a novel with ideas is one thing. Any good novel, and indeed any bad novel, has plenty. A novel of ideas is something else. Ideas, after all, so easily slide into ideology. The characters in philosophical novels notoriously tend to become caricatures of authorial positions, less people than spokespeople. And their authors, from the genre's beginnings, numbered far more Ayn Rand's than Dostoyevsky's. This is Moses' quote, not mine. The idea-driven work of fiction, Moser argues, is prone to fakeness. That's his word for it, fakeness. But when ideas emerge organically from situations and characters, the opposite effect is produced. Now, I feel very strongly that we don't think our way into stories. Stories emerge from us in a dribble or a roar, often in a blur, yes? Stories are play. It's the act of playing. Even when we end up writing a novel or a screenplay outline, as many writers do, especially people writing a genre, you know, writing a mystery or a thriller, um, in order to sort out the sequence of the story. This is also a form of play because it's concrete as well rather than abstract. What if X did this and then what if Y shows up just at that moment? What if it's snowing and the power is cut off and they're trapped in the house together? What would X say to Y? What would Y do? The writer is not really thinking. They're not thinking, well, my idea here is to demonstrate the deep alienation of human existence. <laughs> Employing the device, the literary device, of pathetic fallacy through an isolated, snowed-in forest in which my puppets, X and Y, will play out the demise of their relationship, sorry, the drugs, um, <laughs> symbolizing blah, blah, blah. Now, some elements of this may be churning away in the writer's subconscious, but as soon as I let it take over my writing mind, the idea suffocates the story because the story is a thing. Someone gave me a prescription-only drugs that had been given to her. I, I think it's probably a mistake to be taking them. <laughs> I realize now. <laughs> and by the way, if you want to buy... Um, Claritin D from the pharmacy here, you have to bring your passport or some ID. Otherwise, they think you're starting up a meth lab. Just an FYI. 
I don't know what you can make with one packet of Claritin D, but <laughs> maybe it's just foreigners. <laughs> so our idea sorry to get back on track. Our ideas sizzling and bubbling within us are the pressure on the page that we don't need to understand or articulate as some kind of statement of intent. Our work is bigger than us and it's deeper than us and it's more intelligent. It stands on its own feet. Hopefully, it outlasts us. We don't get the chance to explain it to every reader, do we? Picking up a, a book in a shop or a library or browsing online. And this is just as well because we will be arguing with readers all the time. Readers have their own ideas when they seem equally reluctant to jettison. They wear them like life jackets so they can bob above a story or a novel, surveying their domain, certain of eventual rescue rather than plunge themselves into unknown waters. Now, the chestnut of almost every reading and festival appearance, as I'm sure you know, is the question, where do you get your ideas? Now, some writers try to be charitable and play along, especially if the question comes from a child. Children always ask that. I've tried talking about the seeds of a story or the different interests and images and preoccupations that feed a particular book or the sparks of the story sometimes I talk about. But usually we end up playing the idiot savant, unable to answer the question in an audience-pleasing way. We mumble and we squirm. We talk about hearing voices or seeing visions. Nabokov spoke of the... Listen to me saying Nabokov, like a Russian I speak. Nabokov spoke of the urge to garner bits of straw and fluff and eat pebbles. We seem to be making the process of writing too mysterious. We risk appearing over-precious, ungenerous or unbalanced. But the problem is, much of the time, we don't really know. In the Paris Review, Art of Fiction interview with Paul Bowles, which is a fantastic series, I'm sure many of you read those interviews on the Paris Review website. Nearly all of them are available for free. Uh, Paul Bowles declares himself to not be a thinking person and admits that a lot seems to happen without my conscious knowledge. When Deborah Eisenberg, the great contemporary short story writer, who I recommend to anyone who hasn't read her, uh, when she's asked what she starts with when she sits down to write, she says, I never start with anything. So the interviewer asked her a bit later, so you hate making things up, but you have to start somewhere. How does that usually work for you? And she says, I hardly know myself. I can't explain it. I can't account for it. I don't feel that I have what people mean by an imagination. But when you fall asleep, your dream doesn't start by scratching its head and saying, oh no, I can't think of anything to dream. And when the interviewer asked her how she overcame her resistance to writing, because she says, you know, she resists sitting down and getting on with it, and if eventually her fingers just start moving, she said, yes, it's like a Ouija board. I write down some little thing, and then eventually something comes out of that or doesn't. I'm just trying to get down one accurate sentence and then another accurate sentence. And most of my time is spent rearranging the little counters in the sentence and then the little counters on the page and then the little counters in the whole. But there is nothing in my mind when I'm writing until I'm well along in a piece. Until then, I have no ideas, no conscious feeling. Norman Mailer made the distinction between intellect and instinct and the importance of practice over thought. Some young writers, he suggested, think if one is able to brood sensitively and incisively on one's own life 
and on the life of others for that matter, one will be able to write when the time comes. That assumption, however, may not recognise sufficiently this is why Mailer's books are so long, by the way. Listen to these wordy sentences. Uh, they may not recognise sufficiently that the ability to put words on a page also comes through years of experience and beca can become more a skill nearly separate from consciousness. So he compares this skill with the sophisticated instincts of fingers that have been playing scales for a decade. Again, it comes down to fingers and flow, doesn't it? Hilary Mantel says much the same thing in plainer English. She says, just because you have an idea for a story doesn't mean you're ready to write it. Now, for a writer to be without ideas and without inspiration, I think is not a bad thing. Uh, some of you will have read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. How many people have just out of interest? That's quite a lot, really. How many people have heard of it? Okay. So it's Robert M. Persig. Um, he calls it stuckness. Do you remember reading the concept of stuckness? With an empty mind, he says, you're at the front end of the train of knowledge, at the track of reality itself. And this, he says, is a moment not to be feared, but cultivated. If your mind is truly, profoundly stuck, then you may be better off than when it was loaded with ideas. In 1984, Freeman Dyson picked up Persig's notion of stuckness in a, a book called Weapons and Hope, writing about Einstein and what he calls the unconscious rhythm of the creative process that cannot be hurried. The fiction writer, Alan Gilchrist, really another really great short story writer, uh, read about this in Dyson's book, and in her own book of journals, Falling Through Space, she says, in order to do creative work in any of the arts or sciences, you must go through long or short spells of not knowing what is going on. The good stuff will suddenly happen it may be 12 o'clock at night when you're doing something or you're in the bathtub. It will be when you've given up and least expect it. Students often ask me about writer's block, which they seem to have all the time, usually before something is due, um, because they've left it to the last minute. Um, and it's perhaps because they were relying on ideas that seemed to them to be so brilliant and original but didn't translate in practice into actual stories. They want to have an idea, think it through, and then write it down. And I try to persuade them to stop thinking and to lure them instead into the moment of writing in which the conscious and unconscious worlds of the story are written at once, like two hands playing the piano. I try to persuade them to wallow within their work rather than outside or above it, immersing themselves in the dramatic and emotional moment of the story in the words on the page. Now, recently I was commissioned to write a short story for the Catherine Mansfield Studies annual yearbook. It comes out of the University of Edinburgh. And I resisted writing it until the last possible moment because I needed to trap myself in a corner and write my way out of it. I knew that if I had too much time, I would start thinking of ideas for a story and that would lead nowhere good at all. So the commissioning editor suggested I, take, uh, I write a new take on a Mansfield story. That's apparently all editors in the world, that's all they ever think of now. Why don't you take something someone else has done and redo it? So the first Mansfield story that popped into my head was The Garden Party, and I didn't second guess this. It's not my favourite Mansfield story. Um, it just popped into my head. Are some of you familiar with The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield? No. So I reread the original. And then I grabbed some straw and fluff from it that might be of use, a road accident, a garden party, the words from a particular song. 
I named my main character Lorenzo for no reason, though it turned out like the straw and fluff to seem intrinsic to the story after all when I'd written it. Uh, what else went in there? I'd been on lots of Air New Zealand flights. You know the safety video for a long time? They had the All Blacks doing it, our rugby team, uh, doing a rap version of it. And that got stuck in my head. Um, the New World Supermarket, which is a supermarket chain in Auckland. And I'd been to this big one in Mount Roskill. And Mount Roskill is one of those neighbourhoods that used to be dodgy but is now being gentrified. It's really too, but it's still a real mixture and it's a really great supermarket. Um, I'd been there about three times. That went into the story. Um, someone else familiar with my work might read the finished story and see certain ideas they think I have about race, class, multicultural Auckland. Uh, once a fellow academic at uh, Tulane said to me, all your work is about race. And I was both surprised and relieved because I thought my work is about something. Um, it's always good to know, as you need an academic to tell you. But I wrote this story without a conscious idea or plan. I hadn't written a story for months, and I knew that plenty would be simmering underground, that white-hot centre that Robert Olin Butler talks about. I knew that there would be plenty in there, ready to come out. Only writing would release it, not thinking about writing, not planning, and not casting about for an idea. In 1899, Chekhov wrote a letter from his health-imposed exile in Yalta. He called it his warm Siberia, I think, uh, to the theatre director Vladimir Nemirovich in Moscow. Nemirovich had written to say he'd heard Chekhov was writing a play, and Chekhov denied it and said he was busy with stories. But he did admit, he said, I have a subject, three sisters, he wrote. Now notice he says a subject, not an idea. A few months ago... I was invited to contribute a story for a new anthology of Maori fiction that will be published later this year. So the deadlines are very tight on it. And the editor said, did I have something? Yes, I said, though I had nothing. I had nothing at all. I just lie. I'm a fiction writer, so I just lie constantly. <laughs> so people always ask you if you have something. Do they think you have a stash of stories? You finish, you're like, I'll get around to sending that later. I'm too busy being aesthetic in my garret in Paris to, you know, be... <laughs> All oh, these stories, oh, they mount up. So not only did I not have a story, I had no inklings of a story. I know scraps of something on my laptop. I know scribblings in my notebook, except, you know, the restaurant I wanted to go to. I just founded an organisation that Anna mentioned in my introduction, the Academy of New Zealand Literature, which has a very showy and content-rich website and uh, takes up most of my waking hours at the moment. The website's www anzliterature.com. You should go check it out. It's lots of ways in to contemporary New Zealand literature. But I wanted to be in that anthology, so I had to write something. And I did what Deborah Eisenberg suggested and let my fingers start moving. And now I'm going to read some of what I wrote, the beginning of it. And please indulge me, because I can't come to the faculty reading on Friday, so I'm stealing some of that time for myself now. Um, can we put the picture up, Anna? Is that all right? This is the beginning of the story. The picture hanging near the sliding glass door looked familiar. Fraser wondered if he'd seen the real thing in a museum somewhere else in Europe. It's not Estonian, the Elfin Hotel receptionist told him, but I don't know who. It is a painting of three sisters. I can find out the artist's name for you. 
She frowned at her computer screen as though such information might be listed on the hotel's website. It wasn't a real painting. It was a print in a gilt frame. Fraser supposed it was like the other pictures in the public areas of the hotel, chosen to make guests feel cosy and Baltic and medieval, despite the no smoking signs and the shiny spitting coffee machine. Tallinn had been a rich city once, the picture said, with merchants in fur robes and heavy gold chains who might have had blonde, smiling daughters like these ones. This part of the building would have been his warehouse, piled with amber and pelts, with sacks of flour or barrels of weapons. The merchant and his daughters would have lived upstairs, their windows looking out into the mist and the chimney smoke, gulls cawing from rooftops, snow flecking the thick glass. This was how Fraser imagined Europe looked once upon a time. The women in the picture had bread for hair, burnished yellow strands braided, twisted and woven into rolls and pretzels. Fraser stepped closer. Their hair must have been very long. They must have had maids to help them plait and pile. Their scalps must have been pincushions. His own wife had short hair, which she described as low maintenance, though it seemed to require an expensive cut and retouching, whatever that was, every six weeks. She went to a salon, a word Fraser thought affected and old-fashioned, on Jervois Road. He'd met her there once when her car was being fixed and he'd arrived too early. The place reeked of chemicals. His wife looked like a tinfoil hedgehog. The waiting area chairs were fake leather, sticky with sweat when he tried to stand up. He'd been offered a coffee and it arrived with a Hershey's chocolate kiss half melted on the saucer. The stunted chocolate and its fussy packaging bothered him most of all because it was American and too sweet and not even the colour of chocolate. In a salon, surely they should serve bonbons. The hotel receptionist handed him his key, which was an actual key and not a plastic card attached to a pale wooden doorstop. You should not take this out with you, she told him. Her hair was blonde but pale and wispy, unsuitable for competitive plaiting and weaving. Leave it here at the desk whenever you go. Anyway, it is too heavy. Yes, it is, he said, feeling pleased at the sight of a real key and the weight of it in his hand. He was pleased, too, to have to walk into an exposed, cobbled courtyard to reach his room and to step down two stone stairs, slick with rain, to unlock the door. The door stuck and had to be rattled open. This pleased him as well. There was no point to Europe unless it was old and strange, creaky and quaint, here it was fine for shops to be called salons. Here, men could wear pink jeans. Cars could be tiny enough to park sideways. Coffee could be served in little doll cups. At the Christmas market down the road from his hotel, on a slanted square in the middle of the old town, people buying mulled wine could help themselves through a sprinkling of raisins and take a sliver of cinnamon biscuit to dunk. And by biscuit, I mean the New Zealand biscuit, like a cookie, yeah. In New Zealand, all the biscuits would have been gone in the first 10 minutes. People would grab greedy handfuls of them as soon as they realised the biscuits were free. Larrikins would throw the raisins at loitering pigeons and drink so much mulled wine they'd puke it up in the gutter. The streets around the Christmas market would be spiky with the fragments of smashed souvenir mugs not handed back to the vendor as agreed, even though a deposit for their return had been paid. The Three Princesses of Saxony. That was the name of the picture in the hotel lobby. The receptionist had told him when he was handing in his key en route to the Christmas market. 
Fraser was sure he had seen those princesses somewhere before, in some painting, some museum, some European city. There were so many museums in Europe, columned and echoing, built to resemble Greek temples. Castles would be better, he thought, swigging his mulled wine, somewhere the three princesses might have lived. The stench of the nearby pen, housing bales of hay and actual live reindeer, pale and indolent, lolling against the hay, was too much for him. In this oldest of old towns, he was a visiting merchant, and it was time to go shopping. Okay, so that's the beginning of the story, the first section. The story's called The Three Princesses. I was in Estonia last December. I noticed a print on the wall of the hotel. It's the painting The Three Princesses of Saxony by Lucas Cranach the Elder. You already knew that, didn't you? Some of you did, I bet. Now, I didn't look at the picture again when I started writing the story. That's quite a picture. Um, I also went to the Christmas market, and I ended up using some of that for the story as well, not just the bit I described to you, but specific decorations. And I, I brought a picture to show you, but let's, let's, no, let's not get involved with any more upping and downing and craziness. Now, Fraser, my main character, is sure he's seen these princesses before, and he has, where he's seen someone like them. And that was the only thing I sort of knew by the time I got to the end of that first section. I wrote the story over a series of Tuesday afternoons and two-hour sessions with my colleague, Selina Tusitalamash, who was a really fantastic poet. Um, you can see her online performing for the Queen. She was commissioned to write a poem for the Queen for Commonwealth Day. She flew to Westminster Abbey and performed a poem called Unity in front of the Queen. Prince Philip apparently asked her what she taught when she wasn't being a poet. And she said, post-colonial literature. And he said, post-colonial? <laughs> a true story. I don't think he'd ever heard that term before. She said, Princess Harry and William were super friendly, by the way. Just in case you need some celebrity gossip as part of this. The Queen said to her, how did you remember it? And she said, I'm a poet, it's my job. Anyway, Selina said, we've got to find some time within our week, because she's very busy, she has sons, strapping sons, got jobs. So we went to a particular cafe in the Price Waterhouse Cooper building down by the waterfront in Auckland, and we go there because they have to guarantee it's public space, so you can sneak in your own food and drink. Uh, the final time we went out to write together, it was a little bit later and cafes were closed, so we went to a fancy restaurant where we sat outside wrapped in blankets with an, a, a heater, and because it was between lunch and dinner, they let us sit there and drinking a glass of wine, lowering the tone. Um, and at the beginning of each session, we told each other what it was we were going to be writing. So I say, OK, I'm going to be working on a short story. We were not allowed Wi-Fi. We weren't allowed wandering off. We couldn't look anything up. We couldn't sit there pondering eternal verities. We just had to let our fingers move. Halfway through, we stopped. We read a little bit to each other of what we'd written. Then we went back for another hour. I thought of this exercise for me as writing into the darkness, and I was surprised by what emerged from that darkness. That story becomes an extended riff on European fairy tales and a Maori time traveler. The three princesses of the story are not the three princesses of Saxony at all. I didn't know how the story would develop or end until I was writing it. It really felt like working with clay and seeing something emerge relying on technique and instincts to shape it and to sense when it was complete. In the time between writing stints on the story, my subconscious was at work on it, so that each time I returned to it, 
I was ready to write. I didn't think, what next? I tried not to think at all. So however you work, may I recommend trying to bypass your brain. And by that I mean to stop overthinking, underthink. Trust your ability to shape a story and write a sentence. Trust your instincts as a storyteller and a story reader, which is what we all are, are we not? Well, we're first of all a story listener, then we're story readers before we become story writers. Know that you can and will revise, that you'll be rearranging the counters, as Deborah Eisenberg says, scrutinizing the sentences. Don't look for ideas because they're all there. And they have been all along. Now, this is my talk. It's quite short. Anna said we could have questions. Do we want to have questions? Do we want to have a little discussion? Are your brains too devoid now of all thinking? <laughs> uh, I suck them all dry. Is the question here from Robin? Hang on, hang on. You have to shout into this. So I've been working on my novel, Rose City Mayhem, for about five years. And my question to you is, I've been in the middle doldrums. When I got my story, I see them like films. I get it in a flash. I really didn't know where the story was going to go. I only knew who Shay was. And I'm in that situation now where I've written all of the beginning. I have a sense of how the end is, but I have no bloody friggin' idea in the middle. But I'm passionate about her. I feel like she's a real person. I feel obligated. You've written a lot. I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you, you get where I'm going? Mm -hmm. A lot of people get stuck in the middle, don't they? It's awful. But. You have to trust yourself. The ending of your whole novel is implicit in the beginning of it. And whoever you've put in play into your novel, the characters, that's where the story is. If you have five characters or 10 characters or 20 characters, that's the story. And how those people act and what they do to each other and with each other, against each other, for each other, determines the story. The story's all there. If you've got it, if you've got it started, then there it is. What will this person do next? What will this person do next? And you know, it's not a question of thinking. When you have enough people in a room you know. Those of you who go home for the holidays at Christmas, certain things happening, say Christmas, Thanksgiving, who people are determine what happens. Now, sometimes people behave in a strange way, an upsetting way, someone brings a stranger in, someone comes off their medication, something can happen, right? There can be a, all sorts of turns. But who you have in play is your story. And well, so I just figured out who committed the murder, so that's a big thing. Mm. That's key, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm. It, it didn't start out that way, but yes, it is. Um, sometimes, we talked this weekend about a technique that might help people sometimes is to write, I mean, especially those of you who've worked in screenplays know this technique, write down the plot point on the on index card, spread them all out, have a look and see, okay, I've, I've got this big hole here. How do we get from this point to that point? And then you start playing around with the story, what if? But it's just characters. What if this person does that? Or what if this person arrives a minute later, a minute earlier? Is it just playing? I do a lot of that on my driving home. Mm -hmm. I dictate a lot and then see what Siri's done with it, which actually is sometimes more fun mm -hmm. than what I thought. So mm -hmm. the gobbledygook of Siri. <laughs> Thank you. There's a question here at the front, Anna, from Joe, Joseph. 
you're not the only writer by any means to complain about the question, where do your ideas come from? Um, I, I hear complaints about that so often. So I thought I would offer a little bit of advice because I get that question too. And I'm always happy to answer it because there's always a funny story behind where one of my novels or short stories come from. And it's fun to tell it. And maybe if you can invent good stories about where your ideas come from, you can then give the questioner a little prod in the direction of getting some ideas themselves. And but I don't want them to get ideas, Joseph. I don't want them to get ideas. That's not where stories come <coughs> from. For example, the novel I'm writing now, Yellow Palace, the first spark of the story was I saw in my imagination a man crossing London Bridge in London. Yeah, it's a big, drafty bridge, ugly, but it links the South Bank with the city of London, you know, the beginning of the city of London, the financial district. And I saw him walking over, and I thought, who is he? Who's this guy? Why is he going over there? Does he live in the South? And he's working in the city. What does he do? Why is he living in... Why, does he live by the river? Because he's walking. He's not on a... He's not coming out of a station or anything. That was probably in 2009. That, he's my character now, James. He's just got divorced. He's bought a stupid apartment that's half finished right on the river, and he works as, in a big corporation on, in the city. He's very unhappy, and the river's going to be quite important. And he's someone, eventually, I was playing around with, as a child went to a park called Western Springs in Auckland and thought he saw a woman's body lying in the shallow water with weeds. But he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything to his father, didn't say anything to his sister who was there, said nothing, but went home and looked at the news for a few days to see if something was said, nothing was said. So he's not sure if he really did see it or not. And he's not really sure why he never said anything to anyone. It was very vivid to him, but he never said anything. And I wrote that scene not really knowing how it would work with the rest of the story. It's now the prologue of the novel, actually. Kind of a, well, it's kind of the first bit of it. But I couldn't say at all that I had an idea for the, the novel. There are now three point-of-view characters one of whom is a bank auditor, his cousin, Anna. So I've taken your name. No, you see, you've just given us a brilliant answer to where do your ideas come from. No, but what, what did I imagine something? You saw this guy walking across the bridge. In my imagination. I yeah. didn't see him in reality. I imagined it. Okay. We, let's discuss this later. This is why I didn't want questions. I, I think you have to trust... I mean, sometimes you wake up and you're not even thinking and you start writing. Some of you are morning writers, yes? I'm not. I'm a cocktail hour writer and going into later. But often I write something, I know many of you have this experience, where you're writing and something comes out onto the page and you did not expect it, anticipate it. After you've written it, you almost can't remember writing it. I'll read th I was reading through that story I read a bit for you today. And I, I only wrote it relatively recently. I don't remember writing it. I don't remember writing... The, you know, you sort of laugh again at bits, thinking it feels very new to me, because I didn't think my way into it. I certainly didn't have an idea that started it. And I find... I mean, with my students, as they think about having ideas, they get very bogged down in the idea. Well, in fact, the story they have to tell is almost always within themselves. 
and it's why they do much better at creative non-fiction than they do at fiction. Because in creative non-fiction, they really are looking inside for the story. They're thinking about what really gets to them, what annoys them, what they're passionate about. One of my students, and I know she wouldn't mind me telling you this, wrote a very good essay. She's a very meek, quiet girl, Chinese immigrant. Her parents are Chinese immigrants. And of course, you know, in New Zealand, many people see the Chinese as one thing, but the Chinese are many things, many you know, regional differences and also class differences. And she wrote about a childhood growing up where her parents were kind of looked down on by other people in the Chinese community because they were from a lower class in China. And she wrote incredibly beautifully about going to her parents' fish and chip shop after school every day, her and her brother, and sitting on deck chairs to do their homework on the big chest freezer out the back of the shop. Really, really great detail. But th then when they go to write stories, it's like, you know, next year on the planet Zog, you know. The robots descended, and it's really super derivative because they were looking for ideas the way I look for ideas when I look in shop windows. You know, I look in a shop window to see how someone's decorated their Christmas tree for an idea, or I look how someone's set up a, you know, a dining room table for an idea. I'm, I'm taking someone else's. But with her essay, it had come from somewhere deep within her, and she had made the, the details of her life incredibly vivid. And the task for us as fiction writers is to write, as many people say, as though it's memory, although it's, as though it's dream, as though it's your own experience, where you really are in that moment. And it really is authentic, not the fakeness, I suppose, that uh, Persig was talking about. Yes, Heidi, you have to wait for the mic, I'm afraid. We can make the screen go up and down again while we're waiting for you. <laughs> I read your novel, Rangatira, I don't know how to say it, um, and it's based, it seems to be based on an actual person, an actual trip, an actual portrait. So did you do a lot of research, um, or did you, do you dream your, how does research and dreaming your way into a character um, mesh? Research is a fun thing you do to stop yourself from writing for many, many years. Um, <laughs> So the novel is based on a true story of a group of Māori rangatira who were elders, chiefs, high-up people, to England. Um, they met Queen Victoria, and one of them is my tūpuna ancestor, so the story was told from his point of view. I did do an awful lot of research for that, but it doesn't, you know, an idea doesn't help you write a book, research doesn't help you write a book. It helps with some elements of the book, but with that it was a structural puzzle. This was a man who, whose life spanned the 19th century, he died, he died in 1896. He was born very early on. He was born into an entirely Maori-speaking world in New Zealand with almost no white people around. He was born into a pagan world. By 1830, when he was in his 30s, um, the British were pretty entrenched, and he was baptized into Christianity. By the 1880s, when he was an old man, Māori were already a minority in New Zealand, and people thought they were dying out, that the race was going, that the language was going. Today, it's about 20% of the population, 15 to 20% of the population, but then it was much smaller. So my big challenge with the book is how do you write a book from the perspective of someone who is not like anybody living today in New Zealand because he was born into a New Zealand that has not existed for a long time, one that was pagan and Māori-speaking, and no Māori New Zealander has that experience. 
Um, but the, the thing that enabled me to click into place with the book and to finally sit down and write it was another novel, Alvin, uh, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Some of you have read that. So the idea of Kublai Khan and Marco Polo in conversation, that notion of them in conversation. For some reason, uh, because there's a painting on the cover of the book, which is of Paratene, it was done by uh, uh, Lindauer, a bohemian painter who was visiting New Zealand. He, in real life, he and Paratene never met. He painted it from a photograph. But I, you know, what if you put them in the same room together? There's two non-native English speakers in the same room together over a period of a week. One's painting the other's portrait. And this is the thing that kind of studs the book and structures it and then allows us to journey back and forth into the past. So um, that all happened very quickly. After many years of research and thinking, how do I do this? Do I write a Charles Frazier sort of the 19th century novel, you know, all the different things? Do I just focus on the trip to England, which is what I thought about for a long time, played around with? But it was really just allowing myself to stop thinking about it and then Invisible City is a book I loved. Try this out and see if it works. And it did. Well, I think it did. Probably the internet disagrees, but I try not to go there. Have we got time for just one more or so? So when you write intuitively in this way, do you do a fair amount of backtracking in the first draft, like finding that maybe the next day at the computer writing desk, I went in a false direction you know, yesterday, this is not taking me where I want to go, or do you wait until you get to the very end basically to start you know, fixing things, changing false paths? Another thing is works, you have to work out what works for you. Some people prefer to revise as they go along, other people prefer to write through. Deborah Eisenberg in fact says she it's only when she writes what she thinks is the final draft of the story that she kind of realizes what the story is, and then she can go back and do one final revision once she knows what the story is, but she doesn't know while she's writing it. So she's not someone who is going to revise every day. Um, I do spend a lot of time, what Elizabeth McCracken calls off the page. I, I would rather, I took a, my little cousin's baby, my cousin's little baby, sorry, for a walk the other day, in a pushchair. What do you call them? Do you call them pushchairs? Strollers. Strollers. We're quite, you know, we're quite straightforward in New Zealand. It's a pushchair. Anyway, <coughs> we, I was pushing her in her chair and, you know, she was asleep, which was the reason I was taking her out because she'd been a nightmare. Um, and in the course of that, I wasn't actively, I mean, I was looking at houses, I was wondering where I was, I was getting lost and I came back and something had clicked into place in my head about the book. And I wasn't thinking consciously about it or actively about it, but it's like, oh yeah, okay, maybe I'll try this. You have to work out what's best for you. For me now, I tend to do a lot of the daydreaming around it, and then when I sit down to write, it's, I'm, I, I can trust that what's gonna come out is gonna work for the story. But you will have to find out what suits you, obviously. I don't like writers who tell you that, you know, you must get up in the dawn and write into the light or... Because some of us are quite lazy and others of us have got children to get off to school or jobs to do. So you have to be cunning and find out what works best for you. There was one question at the back and then maybe we should stop, right?
Um, it seems that you are somewhat of an academic migrant, so that you, you've been in England and the States and back to New Zealand. And, and it also seems that you write from and with the unconscious processes. That's what I, I feel I hear from you. So I'm wondering if you could, I, I don't think I have a question, but I'd really like to hear from you how sense of place, and in particular language in that place, mm -hmm. informs this process of yours. Because a couple of times in this presentation, you've had to translate some mm -hmm. words for us and it would seem that perhaps that's a part of your process all the time, but I'd like to hear more about that. Place is very important to me. Thank you for the question. It's, yeah, I mean, all my stories are set somewhere. You know, and you, all of your work set somewhere, even if it's a made-up place, even if it's a future place or a fantasy place. Time and place are very important. Um, we did a little exercise this weekend on error in our class. We had a really great little class this weekend where everybody wrote a description of this error from their point of view. Quite a high attitude little description. And we got very diverse views. But if you were a planet, uh, an alien arriving from the planet Zog and heard everyone read there, you would think you had landed in a very surreal country, I have to say. Um, it was really, really interesting. Um, but for me, I'm, because I'm from New Zealand, which is in the edge of the world, and we'll never be at the center of the world, because often I'm writing things set in other places, um, you're always trying to tr stay faithful to the idiom of those places, the way they see things. Now, Fraser in that story is a New Zealander, so he is going to say biscuit. If he was an American, he would say something else. You know, you always, it's always about your character and everything they bring with them, as we all do, all our baggage, our background, our heritage, our ways of doing things, our ways of seeing things. Everything is about point of view. And as my class is finding out to their horror, the point of view I'm obsessed with point of view, the emotional and dramatic moment, what happens in that moment, how we experience it, how our point of view character experiences it, that's, that's all there is in the story. Um, but language is, is always an issue. Rangatira, this is an aside, but uh, the sales and marketing people at Penguin did not want it to be called Rangatira. They wanted it, to, what do you think they wanted it to be called? Chief. Chief. It's like, really? I said I would rather the book wasn't published than be called that. There's some things you've got to argue about. But, you know, language is something, language is everything we have as writers. That's what it is. It's word by word, sentence by sentence. That's what we have as writers, as fiction writers. And our work ultimately is not really about the originality of the story or the grandeur of the idea. It's about the words on the page absolutely about the words on the page. You can have the slightest of stories, but it be transcendent experience for the reader because of the words on the page. You look at a story like The, the Dead by James Joyce, what happens in it? Man goes to party, his wife hears song, she cries back at the hotel room, he feels annoyed. You know, I mean, that's sort of the plot of the story, but the writing of it is unbelievable. And the very end of The Dead, even though it does some things that I would tell students not to do involving adverbs, um, is one of the most remarkable endings of a story because of the writing, because of the words on the page. So that's why I say to you, don't worry so much about ideas and think more about the writing. That's, that's, that's where stories happen. We should really stop, shouldn't we? Thank you very much.